Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 10. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you to anyone listening from Down Under. If you have time, please leave a rating and review so we can keep expanding our audience. Today's guest is lighting designer Trudy Dalglish. Based in Sydney, Australia, Trudy was the lighting director at the Sydney Entertainment Center for seven years, where she designed opera, ballet, circus, ice skating, rock concerts, and sporting events. She has designed for Opera New Zealand, Victorian Opera, and West Australian Opera. For the Gordon Frost Organization, she has designed In the Heights, Saturday Night Fever, Legends, and Fame. She lit the Australian tours of the arena versions of Grease and Hairspray. She has won many design awards, including three Green Room Awards for Hairspray, West Side Story, and Eureka the Musical. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Trudy, to the podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be here from the other side of the world. Yeah. Um, And I just want to start off by saying this is May 28th, 2020 that we're recording. It's May 29th for me. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the 28th and 29th. But either way, it's in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown shutdown. At least we're still shut down here in New York City. Well, we're kind of still shut down here too, so... Yeah, well, though though things are opening up here, which is really lovely, and you're allowed to go and visit people and have people for dinner, so it's not as bad as it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, okay, yeah, and then the other thing I'll just point out, which doesn't really matter, is that it's 7 p.m. for me here, and it's 9 a.m. tomorrow for you. Correct. You know, I, I have a drink in my hand, you have coffee in your hand. <laughs> and I've just got out of the shower, correct. <laughs> I did too, I just went for my jog. I was like, oh, got to go jogging. Okay, so, and then I'm just going to say that we met um, when you came to New York City in January. Um, I was the associate of the Yiddish Fiddler on the Roof, lighting designer Peter Kazarowski, who was guest one on this podcast. Uh, your company in Australia, or in, in Sydney, was going to put on the production. And so you came to sort of get the paperwork, see the focus, see the lights. Um, anyway, so that's where we interacted. Correct. That's very correct. Yes, on a very cold January Sunday morning. Could you give us a two-minute recap of your life and how you got to where you are now? Okay, dokes, I can do that. Um, I'm from Sydney, Australia. I was raised in Canberra, which is our national capital. Uh, Not many people know that. Everybody thinks that either Sydney or Melbourne. But it's actually Canberra, which is a a tiny little bush town in the middle of nowhere, Um, kind of like Brazil. You know how Brazil went and built another capital city in the middle of nowhere? Well, so did we. It was great. Um, And in Canberra, the last two years of high school, you actually go to another school and it's a bit like university. So um, the last two years of high school, you're kind of put in another school and the school you can choose you know units like you do with university and it just prepares you better for university I was the first year to go through that process in Canberra the school they built had a fully functioning theatre a fully functioning tv studio a fully functioning radio station Uh, we had our own car to learn to drive in so it was very progressive it was a state school so it was government a government school and I just fell in love with lighting uh, there so after that I started taking odd jobs around Canberra at the Canberra Theatre and the Canberra Rep I applied for NIDA which is National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney when I finished school which is kind of the equivalent of RADA in UK and I think maybe Yale in New York um, it's where you go to learn you know, how to be a lighting designer or a technical person. I didn't get in that year because uh, I was only 17. I went to uni and did prehistory and anthropology for two and a half years. So basically I just went to uni so I could muck around in theatre. You know, I did, so- I did something that my parents wanted me to do, which was go to university. But um, after another two years, I reapplied for NIDA and got into NIDA, so they accept 15 people out of 7,000 applicants a year. Whoa. Um, So I applied for the technical production course, um, which was three years full-time. That course, you basically learned how to do everything, so you had to do wardrobe, set, building, props making, then you could do lighting, sound. So it was just an overall 
um, kind of introduction to theatre really. And in the last year, you could specialise in what you wanted to do. So um, that's when I got back into into lighting. When I left there, I it basically churns you out as a stage manager or an assistant stage manager. Um, so when I left there, I went to Sydney Theatre Company as an ASM and hated it. So <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it was it was not what I wanted to do. So I, I basically left theatre for ten years. And I went into rock and roll. So for 10 years, I worked at the Sydney Entertainment Centre in the 1980s. So saw every major band come through in the 80s. And also the new technology, you know, we went from park hands to scrollers and suddenly there was moving lights. You know, I still remember the first time I saw a VL1. And so that was pretty amazing time to be in that industry. A VL1, I should say, now dead technology. <laughs> <laughs> Very dead technology. And no wonder, you know, if if you didn't have one of those online, you couldn't actually plot it. You know, if there was one light missing, you just couldn't plot it, which was really bad. Anyway, so that, so that was great. You know, that was a really, really good foundation. Um, after about 10 years, I got a bit tired of the rock and roll life. Uh, so I thought, oh, well, I'll go back to theatre. Um, and I was just really, really lucky that that was the the cusp of when moving lights were coming into musical theatre. And so there was nobody in Australia that really, in theatre, that knew anything about moving lights. So I was fortunate enough to uh, be the associate for Beauty and the Beast, Natasha Katz's Beauty and the Beast, uh, which was the first kind of major musical in Australia to use moving lights. So from there, you know, I did a lot of associate. I was head, head electrician for quite a few shows. So I came up through the nuts and bolts of actually putting shows in and up, uh, which was quite unusual then for a, a woman. You know, there was a lot of kind of both, though the 10 years in rock and roll certainly prepared me for, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> for yeah. any, you know, for any grief I'd get about being a woman because sometimes at the entertainment centre I'd be the only girl in like 60 loaders, you know, during a bump in or out. So that was quite character building. Wow. Uh, I want to ask years-ish, like what year did you get back into theatre-ish? Uh, about 93, yeah, about 1993 I got back. And it was, you know, it was the very, very start. And so, you know, I did a few associates and then I started doing some designs myself. Um, and because I was the only one using moving lights, I kind of cornered a market um, and had a lot of major musicals. And, yeah, I've worked for you know, all the major companies in Australia, Sydney Theatre Company, Sydney Dance Company, Australian Opera, I do quite a bit of opera around the place. I like opera, um, except if they're six hours long and long and boring. But um, <laughs> Which they are. <laughs> they are I know. I'm lucky I get really I get really short ones or they get me to do the Sondheim or the, you know, so I'm quite lucky in that respect. Um, done a lot of work overseas. Um, you know, in Australia, you do a lot of work in Asia, yeah. um, which is very difficult. China especially is extremely difficult to work in. Yeah, done some West End. The only show of mine that has got to New York was Steel City at Radio City Music Hall. Um, that was many years ago, but that's that's my only kind of New York work, apart from being an, a, you know, an associate. Maybe we can get some people to listen to this that can take another show to New York. Yeah, like, Trudy needs another show in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that'd be lovely uh, once we're over all of this and once you're over all of this. Um, I also do a lot of work in the Middle East, uh, Qatar, Abu Dhabi. I do a lot of uh, ceremonies, you know, opening, opening and closing ceremonies, big arena stuff. Yeah, so that's basically me in a nutshell. Amazing. Trudy, when the world gets turning again, if you need an assistant or an associate on any of those Asia, Middle East, or Australian ones. <laughs> That's the trouble. You know, you guys are so spoilt. You know, we, we when I do a, an original design here, it's me and my programmer, and if I'm lucky, a follow spot caller. But, you know, we don't have assistants or associates, or the only time we have associates is if, you know, one of your shows comes from, from Broadway to Australia, and then, you know, there's, a, there's an associate put on. But, a, you know, if it's a, an original Australian design, 
no way on the face of the universe. But I would love to have you. I would love to have you. Well, whenever you get a fee that's just too big for you to handle and you're like, well, I'll just give half of it to somebody else. Ethan, okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure you have that problem often. (laughs) When, When we're able to get on planes again. Our borders are closed, you know, so so you actually can't fly into Australia at the present moment. So, you know, we're, we're basically, we, we locked down really early and uh, I can see our borders being closed until at least the end of the year. Nicole and I, we've been planning for years a trip to Australia because that's like a big trip to do. We've been following Qantas Airlines was going to have a New York to Sydney nonstop. And they've had it planned for like four or five years. And so every year we sort of check in to be like, yeah, yeah, there's an article about it. They're still planning it. And this year they did test flights. They did the test flights. It's like a 21-hour flight or something. Anyway, I think COVID-19 has stopped that plan. Correct. But you can always come via Los Angeles or San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally willing to do it. But but it's also just stopped the plan of going to Australia this year. We were going to do it in December. And oh, oh, it would have been perfect. E- even if things open up by then, which I don't think they will, we wouldn't have enough time to sort of plan it into our lives. Well, hopefully you can come very soon. I hope so. Okay. And then also, I want, just want to address, you say we're very spoiled. Uh, really only on like Broadway and big shows are there assistants and associates. Oh, oh, okay. All, all the stuff I do mostly is just me. Sometimes I have to program for myself. Actually, very often because... Me too. The scale of things I work on are uh, smaller. I mean, I kind of enjoy it, you know, especially for like, you know, concerts and stuff like that or benefits, you know. I love like programming offline and... And stuff like that. And I think it makes you a better designer and a better associate, you know, if you can understand the process of, you know, what your programmer goes through. I always appreciate, I've had one programmer now for 18 years, Jason Fripp, and he programs all my shows. He's just been out with Hugh Jackman on his world tour as the lighting director. But he's great. And, you know, it's kind of a real shorthand now. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I always say it's like putting on a comfy pair of slippers when I work with Jason. That's awesome. Okay. So now we're going to get to know your creative personality a little bit. What is a live event that you love to experience as an audience member? I'd really have to say rock concerts. So having seen the best of everybody that came through the Sydney Entertainment Centre in the 80s, I'd have to say for pure spectacle, even though I don't really like their music, for pure spectacle it'd have to be Pink Floyd. Inflatables, you know, things going everywhere, you know, uh, listening to to um, Mark the LD or technical director try and call that show was just incredible every night. Yeah, I'd have to say that for pure spectacle. But I just love the audience in a rock concert and I love the way that lighting can make people roar, like even turning the house lights off. Do you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> yep. it's just a phenomenal atmosphere to be in. I love arenas. I love lighting arenas um, and I love being in them, you know, in an audience kind of way as well. Yeah, so I'd have to say anything that was big and live and and Pink Floyd does kind of stand out as a, you know, gobsmacking moment, really. Yeah, that's awesome. Another one of our guests was talking about spectacle because they love like the Super Bowl here uh, yeah. or a big football game yeah. um, just because it's so ridiculous. It's just so overdone and every everything, just because you're in an arena, everything is scaled up. Uh, you know, other than like a space shuttle launching, it's like, how do you get bigger, a more spectacle than that on the planet? You don't. Like arenas are the big spectacle. Yeah, yeah. No, I love them. Lots of toys to play with. And just the audience vibe. I mean, I, I you know, I so hope we get back to that one day. <laughs> we will. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> okay, um, what is a piece of art that you like? That's a really, really hard one. You know, I studied art history at school and at uni and I love art from every age. You know, I love 20th century sculpture. I like Rembrandt. I love Kandinsky, Dali. You know, I love Turner for his skies. You know, I love all art. I have a lot of art books and I just love going through and, you know, looking at pictures and paintings. I think visually, you know, it just, you know, the most amazing thing that we have in the world is art I think I can't pin you know something it's just I'm really inspired by art and love it I love how the human brain you know can produce these amazing visual you know 
pictures, which I suppose is the same as our kind of industry, except their paintings don't get burnt. I always think of lighting design as, you know, you do this amazing lighting design and it's never seen again. It's destroyed, you know, like it's not destroyed, but it's just never seen again. It's lovely that they can put their art into something that can, you know, survive for centuries. I love architecture too. I think that's the same thing, you know. I love art and architecture. I think I love shape and form, really. So when you are going to design or something, where do you pull your inspiration from? Nature for me is a real inspiration for everything. I'm lucky enough to live near a beach. In my, I have a house up an hour and a half out of Sydney called Evoke Beach. You know, I love the beach and I love how the sea and the sky changes completely all the time. You know, every five minutes it's different. So I guess I'd have to say nature Um, And also in Australia, our light is so bright. You know, you see it in Australian lighting designers' work that we're more saturated colours. You know, we're not pastels or, you know, we just go for like saturated. And I think that that's, that's a reaction to how much light that we have in our world and how vibrant our environment still is. I mean, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here surrounded by trees and And I can see like 50 different greens in the trees and it's amazing. I love the beach. Me too. (laughs) Uh, What music do you listen to? I'd have to be really boring and say I'm I'm mostly an 80s girl, you know, so I love, you know, 80s music. I love The Pretenders, you know, Joan Armour Trading, The Cranberries. You know, I grew up listening to Elton John as a kid, you know. I, I love his music. Um, you know, Warren Zevon. I love Bruce Springsteen, a lot of Bruce Springsteen. I know that's a very rock thing. Um, a lot of Australian bands as well, like I don't know if you've heard of any of them, Midnight Oil, Hoodoo Gurus, ACDC. Yeah, that one. You know, so <laughs> I also love, you know, my, I grew up, my dad loved Glenn Miller. Oh, yeah. You know, so big band music, you know, Nina Simone, Otis Redding. Um, you know, I quite like classical music, you know. When my brain's too busy, I like to listen to Mozart. A, a big cross-section, I love music and always have, um, which is why I love, you know, lighting musicals because you like the music and which is why I loved the rock and roll for 10 years as well. Have you ever watched the movie with Jimmy Stewart, The Glenn Miller Story? <laughs> yes, I have. When I was younger, I watched it time and time again i loved it i love the music but it's sad in the end yeah it's true i think yeah i want to say it was on videotape and it was like two tapes like it must have been a long movie yeah i don't i've never talked about that movie with anyone (laughs) oh there you go what music do you like just uh, everything i can i mean american country music is something i like a lot (laughs) oh no country western is my worst i just see tumbleweeds tumbling across i go i go Are you from the country? Well, I'm from uh, the middle of the USA. I'm from right. a, a state called Missouri. It's uh, Midwest, yeah, sort of. But like, but it was from the suburbs, so like, I wasn't really in the country. But I just like the music. Fair enough. No, that's good. It's good to have diverse tastes. Yeah. Um, what are some of your hobbies? I don't have any. I don't have time for hobbies, really. I mean, you know, since COVID-19, you know, I've been thinking what I could do because um, it's kind of driving me crazy mentally. You know, I need a bit more stimulation. When I was a kid, I was a really good sailor. So, you know, I was an Australian champion in sailing um, and up until my very late teens. And I'd love to do more of that. So maybe now's the time to think about, you know, buying a boat. I'm really, really happiest when I'm near water or in it or on it so probably that'd be a really good hobby an expensive hobby but a really a really good hobby I don't know anybody in our industry who has time for hobbies really well I'm not here anyway um you know because we're all working so hard all the time I actually I do love cooking you know cooking for me is a recreational activity so maybe you know maybe that would be it I, I really do enjoy making good food and sharing it and you know a lot of people say cooking and Nicole and I are kind of like cook to live like cook because we have to eat food oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I, I just sort of feel weird because everyone's like I love cooking and I'm like oh, it's a means to an end for you yeah <laughs> I was like, I just want to take a pill and never have to eat a meal again. Oh, no. That's <laughs> terrible. But that will, the science doesn't exist, so I can't do that. No, thank God. <laughs> um, I definitely think you should get a boat 
definitely. Yeah, I do. You know, I do too. I, you know, a, a nice sedate boat. You know, not 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 a a racing boat like I used to. But yeah, I'd I'd love to. Up the coast, you know, there's plenty of room and there's you know mooring and stuff like that. So it's probably a good possibility. But it depends on how long this you know goes on for, really. So what you're saying is you need to buy it tomorrow. and for me you're in tomorrow so that means today for you (laughs) that's true i should have bought it yesterday yeah so this way when nicole and i finally do get down to australia you'll already have had the boat for a year or two and you'll know everything about it exactly (laughs) and i'll definitely take you for a sale (laughs) i'll have to make sure to come like when you're between shows And then, like some sometime when I'm on the 21 hour flight, you'll somehow book a gig, and I'll show up and be like, "I'm ready." And you're like, "Sorry, I got to take this gig." <laughs> no, never. Um, you're always most welcome. Awesome. Oh, I actually did want to follow up a question about the boat because if you, it sounded like you your capital was landlocked, right? Where you grew up? Yeah, correct. But we had a lake. Ah, okay. So it was built around, you know, it, because it was a manufactured city, mm-hmm. it, they they made a lake. So they basically dammed a river yep. um, and made a lake called Lake Burley Griffin. Um, and that's where I learned to sail. And it was great to learn to sail there because it was surrounded by mountains. Mm-hmm. Canberra is in is about is the only city in Australia where it snows. Ah. Um, so it was surrounded by mountains. So the wind shifts were really really difficult to to you know read. So we became really really good sailors because you know the wind was always shifting. I used to. Um, cheap because there was cows and farms on the mountains and a cow always turns with their bum into the wind mm, yep. so you could always tell when a wind shift was coming because the cows on the mountain would shift so you could actually read it that way yeah so yeah it was it was good fun but it was it was hard and it was cold <laughs> you know you had to wear a wet a wetsuit when you were sailing is how cold it was wow which is very unusual in australia wow that's amazing um okay so now we ha- we know your creative personality so now your financial personality could you describe your demographics for us i feel like we've picked some up already but i'm a white woman i'm in my 50s I have uh, two degrees, a degree in technical production and an arts degree in prehistory and anthropology. Born and bred in Canberra. I live in Sydney. I work all around the world. I'm lucky to be home six months out of the year in a normal year. And when I am home, if I'm not working, I'm always up the coast, sitting on the beach or in the water, in the surf. We've got a great surf beach here. I have a partner who I've had for 18 years. We have three dogs, which is difficult when I'm away all the time. That's about it. That's me, really, in a nutshell. Are you bad with money or are you a money wizard? Um, I really love making it. <laughs> I, I, love, I love working. You know, I, I'm really, I'm really, I really love making it, but I'm not very good at making it work for me. So, you know, I'm good at making it and I put it in the bank, but I don't really have that much interest in looking after it or, you know, investing or doing stuff like that, you know. um, Anything to do with accountancy just kind of leaves me dead, (laughs) I have to say. I just like, you know, I try and do really well. And, I, you know, I have done well, but, you know, I've... I could have done a lot more with my money instead of just, you know, putting it in the bank. But, yeah, I do love making it. I love working. So then are you a saver or a spender? Well, I'm kind of both, really. You know, I, I mean, I do save and I don't feel comfortable unless I have a certain amount in the bank. And I make myself always have a line that I won't go below in my bank account just as a buffer zone. But I won't hesitate to splurge on something I really want. Financially, i definitely say I'm risk adverse. I won't hesitate to go on multiple international holidays a year and splurge my money that way at all. Yeah. Okay. When you were growing up, did you have a good financial example? Yeah, I grew up in a middle-class family in Canberra. You know, my dad was an engineer. Um, My mum was a stay-at-home mum until we were about 10, and then she went out to work purely because she wanted something to do with her brain. They were good role models financially. You know, they were careful with money. Um, so I guess I learned from that, you know, we were really comfortable, but 
I mean, I guess Dad had a lot of overseas trips. He sailed a lot and went to world championships and that's maybe where the money went. (laughs) 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 Upkeeping a boat and sending Dad to world championships. It was, we were comfortable, but we didn't, didn't splurge on stuff. So I think that was a really good model. Though no one, no one ever taught me how to manage money or it was kind of household where money wasn't talked about. We didn't get pocket money or anything, but, you know, if we were going out or whatever, you know, we'd just ask mum for some money and she gives five dollars and you know it was kind of like that yeah okay so at the start of your career when you got out of school what did your finances look like then non-existent basically i mean my dad didn't want me to go into theater as a um as a job so i had to get a scholarship to go to nida because uh, he wouldn't support me um my mum did supported me financially but Dad wasn't really keen, so I got a scholarship to going through there. So when I got out of NIDA, I basically had nothing in the bank. But I I got work straight away. And I also worked when I was at NIDA. I was one of the few people that actually, I actually did um, slides on the original Vita. Wow. Um, So I was up there doing operating slides at night. That's cool. I got work in the industry when I was at NIDA. So yeah, I had very, very little money in the bank when I came out, but I got work straight away, so it wasn't a problem. Awesome. I mean, you sound, you sound like a hard worker. I love working. Which I mean, in theater, I feel like yeah, you have to be. be. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be. You've got to be prepared to do you know like twelve to sixteen hours a day every day. You know. To, to be successful, I think. Yeah. Have there been any events in your life that sort of um, changed how you perceived money? No, I, I've always, that hasn't worried me. As I said, you know, anything to do with finances just leaves me cold. Um, so, I, and I wasn't, I wasn't scared of the, of any financial crisis because, you know, uh, we have superannuation, which is pension plans. And, you know, I was in it for the long term. So I knew that any losses that I had, um, you know, I would, get again, you know, with investing, just keeping it there and it would grow again. Uh, You know, uh, the death of my parents gave me a more secure financial base as I, you know, received an inheritance which enabled me to buy my house up the coast here, which has been a great haven for me and my extended family for like 18 years. And having this kind of buffer zone enabled me to be a bit more confident in choosing kind of what work I wanted to do and being able to say no to ones I didn't want to do. You know, the death of my parents had probably, you know, was a, you know, huge financial stability for both me and my brother. So, yeah. Um, Do you and do you just have one brother? Yeah, that's it. And one niece. You know, we're a very small family these days. But yeah, they they come up every year for summer holidays to the coast house. And my niece has been coming since she was six months old. She's now 21 this year. So yeah, if you buy a house and you get a mortgage, I don't know if you got a mortgage. Um, I do have it. I do have a small mortgage on this beach house. Yes. Here you paid off over 30 years? It's 20, 25 here usually, you know, but you can write your own. You can you can do it 15, you can do it 20. The reason, I, I mean, I suppose I do think about money because the reason I still have a mortgage on this is I have a self-contained flat downstairs in the beach house and I rent that out, which covers the cost. Uh, and for tax purposes, you know, I continue to have a mortgage so I can write off any money that I spend on here because I have a mortgage and a tenant. So I suppose I do think think about things a little bit. But yeah, look at you being smart. <laughs> a lot of people in Australia do that, you know. So, you know, the government's pretty good at, um, you know, giving investors tax breaks. So. Yeah, same here, sort of. We had a recent tax change where the mortgage deduction sort of went away or it's not as good. I don't actually quite know, but um, historically, yes, mortgage deductions were good, but now not so much. (laughs) Well, you know, in New York, you'd be hard-pressed to even try and buy something, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm talking about the whole country, New York City as a whole. Different kettle of fish. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're never going to buy anything here. (laughs) Um, Have you had any health challenges? And maybe this is an American question. (laughs) Because here, if you have a health problem, it can rack up like $200,000 of debt. Yeah. I've never had any health problems and certainly nothing that has affected my ability to work. But if I did, we have free health care. Our whole country, no matter what you have or how many you know bills you rack up, it's free, which we're very, very lucky 
Um, I couldn't imagine it any other way, actually. I, I think I couldn't imagine. I can't imagine what you guys go through. People who don't seek medical attention because they can't afford to pay for it, you know. I, I'm appalled. I really am. You know, I know that's a strong word, but it's so unfair, you know. And you pay taxes, and those taxes should go to free health care. It should go to looking after people when they've finished working. Uh, it's just, I'm just speechless sometimes. The richest country in the world, and they can't afford to pay your health care. You know, it's just wrong. I mean, con- considering how much money you spend on defence. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Against who? Yeah, against who. It is a painful <laughs> thing when you look at the military budget and it's like, oh, you could take, I- I'm making up numbers, but it's like 300 trillion for the military budget. One trillion could cover all the healthcare costs for five years. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, uh, okay, I'm glad we have our priorities that buying tanks is more In, important than, you know, yeah, taking care yeah. of us. <laughs> I know. No, no, we're very lucky, you know. So if anything did happen to me or, you know, I'd be, it'd be, I'd be looked after. So, you know, it's not a cost that we even have to consider. Yeah. Um, okay. So on a daily basis, do you worry about money? Um, at the moment, yes. Purely because I, you know, I have no idea where I'm, when I'm going to work again or when I'm going to get income. In normal times, probably yes as well, you know, because that's life of a freelancer. And no matter how good you are or how many shows you are, you have, you never know where the next show is coming from or if the next show is coming. So it's kind of a bit stressful. So yeah, probably I do think about money daily at the present moment, but that's only because I don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from. I mean, the government's been really good here you know they brought in a thing called job keeper which enables um, companies to retain their workers um, so they'll pay you know a part wage each week to people for the next six months um, so you know at least there is some money coming in to pay the bills and buy food and stuff like that so and is that through your work at the opera company no so I'm a, I'm a I'm a company oh okay yeah so I'm a company basically and you know um, when people want me to work for them they'll employ my company um, to go and do a lighting design got it okay okay cool um, when, when you have excess money, where do you put it? Probably travel would be the biggest. I mean, I, I'm really lucky. I go, you know, on holidays two or three times a year. I should be in Croatia at the present moment. Ah. Uh, I know. We have one listener in Croatia. I don't know <laughs> who or why. Well, I should be in Croatia doing the beautiful sailing down the Croatian coast as we speak. Yeah, definitely travel is is where most of my money goes. I like a good meal, but I've just de- I've decided that you know going to a good restaurant and spending money. I mean, I really enjoy cooking myself, and it's probably sometimes I go most of the time I go to a restaurant and I don't really enjoy it because I can cook better at home. So ah <laughs> yeah, there's a big complaint about restaurants that they add salt at every stage of the preparation. We're so lucky here also to have like such fresh produce and really good you know organic stuff and. You know, so it's it's a pleasure to kind of cook with with ingredients. We have a farmers market here at the beach every week. You know, where all the farms around the place come in and sell their produce. So food's good here, which is great. Um, Nicole and I are watching a dessert show from Australia's Zumbo's Just Desserts. Zumbo's Zumbo is Zumbo's shop is in my suburb in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> so when you come, you can line up at Zumbo's with the other 50 people, social distancing, of course. Of course. <laughs> and um, buy a macaroon. Yeah. I don't know if you've watched his show. I have. I think I watched one and I found him really uncomfortable. You know, it was like he was really shy and uncomfortable and it didn't really work for me. He worked better on, when he was on MasterChef, which is a, a different TV program, and he would come in and he would set the contestants a dessert that they had to make. And I think that's where he became really popular. And then the spin-off was his own show, but I don't think he's, yeah, the type to do his own show. So I just felt really uncomfortable watching him. So I've only seen it once. I mean, the thing I find out is that his assistant is Brazilian. Oh, that's us. We're so like you, you know, we're very multicultural. So, Um, Okay, so throughout your life, have you used a budget? No, I have to say no. I'm really bad. You know, I haven't ever worked to a budget you know, I'm thinking about doing one now because I really don't know how much money I need to live on. I've never calculated it. You know, I've, I've never had to because, you know, I've always had enough kind of money coming through. So this week I'm actually going to, you know, start 
doing a budget for the first time. You know, yeah. So wow. Did you talking to me on this podcast have any influence on that? No, none whatsoever. It's just something that, oh my God, you know, I'm only going to get, I'm only getting this amount of money every week from the government. I better actually find out how much a week it actually costs me to live to see how, how many of my savings I'll have to dip into to actually, you know, afford a, a car and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. Okay. What's a fantastic financial decision you've made? And then what's a terrible financial decision that you've made? I, the best financial decision I ever made was to buy my first house in Sydney when I was 23. In the 1980s, uh, housing was really affordable in Sydney. Um, I paid my first house off in eight years and then I was able to buy a bigger house uh, and then another bigger house. I'm in my third house in Sydney now. But, you know, I bought it when it was so affordable and now it's just so astronomical. You know, you could never afford to buy a house in Sydney unless you had an incredible amount of money. So my initial investment has jumped, oh, I would say, almost 20-fold. So that was the best best investment I've ever made. Wow. Good work. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, I didn't know it was going to happen. You know, my, my mother was trying to get me out of group houses. So she suggested that, you know, we go house and buy a house in Sydney so I didn't have to, you know, she was worried about, you know, drugs and rock and roll and, you know, getting me out of houses that would leave me lead me astray. What's a group house? What's group houses? Okay, a group house is like a student house, you know, where you've got 10, you know, young people living in a house together. It's, you usually do it when you're a student because um, it's cheap, you know. So, yeah, so that was my best financial decision, which was probably my mother's financial decision rather than mine, but there you go. I really can't. I don't think I've ever made a terrible one. Yes, you have, Trudy. Go into the back of your brain. Somewhere you did something. To, like t today, you're going to buy a boat. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's probably going to be the worst financial decision I've ever made, you're right. Um, that'll probably be the money pit. But yeah. I mean, I guess I am really cautious. I don't know. Oh, there's a kookaburra. Trudy, I mean, you're you're an amazing interview, but the kookaburra is the highlight of the day. <laughs> and you should see them. They're like scary birds, you know, like they eat meat. Like they don't eat like insects, they eat meat. So they eat snakes and lizards. And so you, you go out on the deck and you actually feed them meat, like mints and stuff like that. And they've got these amazing long beaks um, that are like arrows. So they spear the in, they're not nice birds, but there you go. I don't know. That I, I have a pastime of I go to like different zoos or different nature preserves and they all have like online cameras that you can like, it's just a 24 hour camera and you can check in on the penguins or something. So after this, I'm going to find a kookaburra, 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 kookaburra. I'm going to find a kookaburra <laughs> camera, you know, and like watch some. <laughs> yeah, no, they're scary, scary stuff. I mean, we've got so many you know, animals and whatever that are scary stuff. Right. Yeah, it's terrifying. I've got spiders in my I've got spiders in my backyard that can kill you. Oh boy. Well it's been nice knowing you. Funnel web spiders. So they've only just developed a vaccine in the last five years. But before that we all used to just die. So you can't put leave you you can't leave your shoes outside on the ground because they'll crawl in it. We were taught as kids to always bash our shoes before we put on them to get the spiders out. Wow. Yeah, terrible. My goodness. Okay, the things we're learning here for when we go to Australia. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm going to have to give you a list. You know, you can't go into rock pools in the sea because there's blue ringed octopus that can kill you. And I'll just give you a list of places that you shouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> but a theatre. We can go in a theatre and hopefully we're good in there. Well, at the moment you can't, but yes. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so you sort of answered this question and it's going to be different because you're in Australia. Do you have an entity corporation Situ what's your situation with that? Okay, I, I, I'm a company, so over here I'm a proprietary limited. So basically, I'm the same as a, you know anybody else's company. Yeah, so I'm I'm a company, but with a sole employee, which is me. Okay, is it called anything else, or it's just Trudy da Dalglish? It's it's Dalglish Designs Proprietary Limited. Okay. Did you have to, like, fill out a form and, and create that? Yeah, I mean, basically it just makes more sense financially. I mean, basically my I have an accountant and my accountant suggested when I first started uh, earning enough money, you have to earn a certain amount of money to be able to um, create a 
a company in Australia. So you have to have a certain turnover each year. So when I got to that amount, he suggested that I become a company. And it's great, you know, my company owns my car, my company kind of owns an office in my house. So, you know, I'm able to tax deduct stuff there. Invoicing and stuff like that, it goes to my company. There's a lot of pluses to having a company rather than being a sole trader. Here he is. Here he is. That's a kookaburra. In fact, that's three kookaburras. There you go. Next door's feeding them, so they're a bit frenzy. <laughs> that is so awesome. I'm so glad that you actually heard one because we've got so many of them, and it's such an Australian sound, a kookaburra. That's awesome. Thank you, Next Door. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, um, your sole proprietorship, where along in your career did you make enough money that you did that? Probably about six to eight years in. So when you were doing rock and roll? No, actually after that. So when I was do- when I was at the Sydney Entertainment Centre, I was uh, an employee of the Sydney Entertainment Centre. Um, so when I got out of the Sydney Entertainment Centre and started going freelance, it took me about five years before I could become a... Uh, a company when I started doing a lot of design work okay how much money is it that you have to turn over and does that number change each year or is it sort of been like the same number forever to become a company in Australia you have to have an annual turnover of a hundred thousand dollars or more and you can't fall below that level ah so you can't like open it and then the next year if you don't make it you have to give it up or something yeah so you know it, it Well, it doesn't make financial sense or tax sense to have it because there's, you know, there's fees uh, associated with having a, you know, a company. Um, So if you don't earn a a certain amount of money, it's not worth having one. Been lucky to have the company for a long time now, which is great. You have an accountant. Did you have them, like, have you always had an accountant from your very first year working? Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, from the two years before I became a company. So I left the NCN. I did a couple of years just, you know, head electrician on tours around Australia. Then when I just started to get design work, I uh, got an accountant. And then two years later, you know, we made the company and I've had the same accountant you know, forever. Amazing. Okay. So here in the U S we have like uh, W2 income, which is when you're an employee. And then we have 1099, which is like an independent contractor. So I'm assuming all of your stuff now is, is would be 1099. It's hard because I'm an employee of my company. So me personally, I pay personal income tax, which I think is, so I'm employed by my company. I pay personal income tax, like, you know, anybody, you know, who worked for another company did. My company pays tax as well. And in Australia, we have BAS, which is every quarterly you have to, you know, pay your tax. We have GST, which is a goods and service tax on everything. So, you know, whether it be a pen or, a you know, or a can of tomatoes or whatever, we pay GST on that. Quarterly, I have to tell the government how much GST I've paid and how much GST I've collected. So on my invoices, it's 10%. You know, say if I charge somebody $10,000, $1,000 of that, I have to charge them 11,000 because I have to, you know, charge them 10% GST. Then I pay that $1,000 to the government, but I I get 10,000. So it's it's ridiculously convoluted and just a great way for the government to, you know, collect lots of tax on everything that we a goods and services tax so you know it's on absolutely everything it's only been in for the last 10 years and there was huge uproar when it came in and it's it's put a lot more time into basically doing accounts every quarter and I'm always late I'm always getting fined for being reporting late because I just don't have the time to do stuff like that you know and it means that I do have to sit down and for you know two hours or whatever and go through it yes I'm always being in the bad books with the government but there you go every quarter is that you sitting down or is it your accountant no it's me because I have to get all the receipts out I'm really terrible I'm still you know pieces of paper and receipts in a shoebox I'm not like, you know, lovely online stuff, you know. So I put my accountant pulls his hair out because he gets a big shoebox every year. See, I, I do the shoebox thing, 
but I also have all the online, so much online. So for me, it's a headache. It's like, oh, I got to go through this credit card. I got to go through this credit card. I got to go through this credit card and see what. Then I have to go through all the receipts. And then I have to make sure I'm not counting those receipts as some of the ones that were on the credit card. <laughs> but what I do is I then put it in an Excel document and I pass that along. Oh, well, you are very good. My accountant would love you. Yeah. Well, I should just give them all the receipts and see what they do. But I feel like they would just charge me a lot of money. <laughs> I kind of, you know, it's kind of like in, in you know, I have to like do it every quarter so kind of it's a you know it's a bit organized because it's you know quarterly it's not just you know here's a shoebox work it out but yeah I just I, you know I can't bring myself to life's too short do accountancy stuff and you know yeah yep um okay so your retirement plan yeah this is going to be different different than us yeah um but what is like your plan for retirement and what all what do, what is it made up of? Okay, so basically in Australia, uh, from your first paycheck to your last paycheck, ten percent of that paycheck goes into a superannuation fund, which is a, basically a pension fund. Um, so by law, every time you get a paycheck, some of that pay goes into a superannuation fund, which is really clever because it means that you know the government doesn't have to rely on pensions. You know, I mean, and you know, it, there is disparity that, that you know people that work really hard and you know get more money, you know, than people who are casual or whatever. But still, even casuals by law have to have to um, have a superannuation fund. If you get into financial trouble, you're able to access that superannuation fund at an earlier time. For instance, at the present moment, you know, with many people unemployed, the government's just brought out that you can access. I think it's $20,000 of your superannuation and pull it out now if you so need it. So it's a really good forced savings. I've had a superannuation fund since I was 18, which has grown wonderfully. So, you know, I'm not going to be a little old lady eating beans on toast, um, which will be good. So, yeah, I think Australia's done it really, really well that way, you know, because they saw that there was, you know, a huge population explosion when I was a kid and that they weren't going to be able to afford to pay pensions to everybody. So that's when they brought in the comp- compulsory superannuation. And I think it's um, worked really well, depending on how the stock markets go in the next year or so. But, you know, I'm sure they'll bounce back yeah. as, as they traditionally have. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not worried. And what about you guys? You just like, do you have pension? Well, wait, actually, one more question about your annualizations. Can you decide how it's invested? Yeah, yeah. Basically, you can you can choose the fund it goes into, and then you can from that fund you can choose whether you want managed funds, shares, cash, you know, how you want your money invested. So, you know, when I was younger, you know, I, I had it in more high-risk options in superannuation, but now I'm getting older, you know, I'm in managed funds and safer safer funds so you can move it around you can move it around every week if you want it's a huge industry in australia the superannuation industry as you can imagine yeah and then also it doesn't matter what job you're working it still goes into that independent fund yeah so so basically you know when you change jobs you just tell your new employee what uh, employer what superannuation fund you're in and for me it doesn't matter because my company just pays you know, the maximum amount of super. It's a minimum of 10, but you can, you know, lately I've been putting like 20, 30% in, you know, just to kind of top it up. Good work. For the boat, for the boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a great idea. We have something here in the USA called uh, Social Security. Yeah, basic, yeah, yeah. So we have a thing called Job Seeker. Um, which is basically unemployment benefits. So if you're unemployed, you go on Job Seeker, which I think is I think is five hundred dollars a week. So a lot of people who live by the beach and go surfing every day are on Job Seeker unemployment benefits. But uh, how long does that last? Well, as long you know, they, there's no there's no time you know that it will finish if you can't find a job then they just keep paying you, which is pretty bad, which is why there's a lot of people bludging up the beach on what we call the doll. Yeah. So in theory, you could like graduate from school and then go on to Job Seeker and then live out your life and die? We have like third generation people, you know, who the third generation is on the doll. <laughs> I know it's a, it's a really bad system. They've tried to make it a bit harder now that you have to prove that you've gone and had interviews 
so every month you have to get you know prove to who you've spoken to about getting a job so they've made it a bit more proactive but still it never runs out so is your annualization thing mcbob that's your retirement outside of retirement do you have any investments um no just the houses. Worst comes to worst, I could sell one. I don't think I'm going to have to because I, you know, I do have a good superannuation fund. So, um, just to warn you, the dogs might come in in a minute. So, all right, we get kookaburra and dogs. <laughs> Are these dingoes? This is what I know of Australia. One is a dingo cross kelpie. So yes, and he's <laughs> wild. He's only ten months old, and he was found in the bush. Oh my goodness! Um, so he's a bit wild. We're I'm still trying to train him into being a, a decent dog. It's a dingo cross Kelpie, you know, which Kelpies are half dingoes anyway. Kelpies are our Australian working dog, um, so they round up the sheep and stuff like that. He's got a double dash of it. We call him Devil Spawn. I hope I get to meet him. Yep, so go on. Sorry. Uh, what job have you had that's been the most lucrative for you? I guess the most lucrative are the ceremonies. So opening and closing ceremonies pay really, really, really well. I did the um, opening ceremony of the Arab Games in Doha in... Uh, 2011 I think it was and that was probably the most lucrative but the week before for the same company I'd um, uh, lit uh, Moscow University for 10 days and that was pretty lucrative too so we basically did projection mapping on uh, one of the big buildings in Moscow and basically had to um, meld all the buildings around it into that projection and I think 3 million people turned up that was the same company David Atkins Enterprises and he's done big things all around the world he did uh the vancouver olympics opening and closing ceremonies opening and closing ceremonies definitely um because you know there's tv involved you know live you know live to air broadcast i love doing big things i really really do and then when you come back to theater it's you know it's a lot easier because you, you know it's so contained instead of this like huge picture that's amazing well and when you do the opening closing are, are you just doing part of it no no the whole kit and caboodle very impressive a lot of people um split it up between you know the ceremony bit and the artistic bit but it's called the cultural bit you know which is what you know the fun stuff but when we do it we do all of it yeah so it's quite a challenge because you know you've, you've got to do proper tv learning that's amazing um okay your professional network and your personal support system um how have those how have those worked in your life are those the same things yeah i I I think with the majority of people that you know um work in this industry you know you don't actually have time to you know have kind of friends or relationships out of side of the industry really most of my friends you know i first met in the industry yeah i think the the two are really blurred basically because otherwise who who else would understand the hours we work and i don't know how you you guys done it you know you obviously don't work in the same industry no it's a blessing and a curse <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's because we work so hard, you know. Like we're, when we're in a show, we're working like sixteen hours a day, six days a week, and that one day off, you know, you're doing your washing or sleeping, or you know, there's no getting anything out of you. I, some of the people that listen to this podcast are not theater people or entertainment people, and I say on on this podcast, I say the same thing you're saying: sixteen hour days, six days a week. And I think people don't actually believe that. Like I, because they just don't work in the industry and they don't have concept of it and they just think it's something I'm saying. And, but it's like, no, really, like you do that and you don't have time to think like your brain goes, does crazy things after a week or two of doing that. You know, it's just, you know, and for it to get a major musical up, you're doing that for six weeks, you know, at least you eventually fall into, okay, you've got the morning session, the afternoon session and the evening session. So it kind of, your, your day is split into three bits you kind of get used to it, I think. Though I do think it's a, a young person's industry, do you know what I mean? I think the older you get, the harder it is to do those hours under that kind of pressure because you are under intense pressure the whole entire time. Oh, why do we do it? <laughs> we don't know what else to do. <laughs> yeah, I certainly have never done anything else. So, you know. Yeah. Um, how much of your success has been hard work versus luck? Most of it's been hard work, um, you know, oh. like – uh, yeah, basically doing everything uh, that you can, you know, accepting whatever work, doing stuff for free. But also to be really successful, you have to have that one or two moments of complete luck. 
you know, no matter how hard you work, hard work's not enough. You know, you have to have that one, that, that break, lucky break. So, you know, I can think of, you know, two lucky breaks I've had that um, have enabled me to, to be as successful. I mean, I see a lot of people who work really, really hard and they just don't get that one or two lucky breaks and they just, you know, they don't make it to that next level. So it's, it's a mixture of the two. Yeah. Okay, what what were your two your two lucky breaks? Um, my two lucky breaks. One was uh, having met somebody at NIDA who gave who then gave me my first lighting design when the designer they had fell through. I met them at a dinner party and they said, oh, I'm looking for a lighting designer. So that was pure luck. The other was uh, getting a tour of Southeast Asia with the Bolshoi Ballet and I just happened to work walk into my old worked office and there was a guy there um, who was looking for a stage manager slash lighting designer. He was just casually talking to my ex-boss, and I piped up and said, I can do both, you know, and and both of those situations, I was just in the right place at the right time. Wow. That's that's awesome. Just for the record, that would, those were lucky, but you then went and put a bunch of hard work into that. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, like... You can't have a lucky break and fail. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so we're heading to the wrap-up now. Um, what is your financial goal for this year? Um, to survive it, basically, without you know, without spending too much money, um, I think is, is my financial goal for this year. Um, to start a budget and find out how much I actually need to live on a, a, each week. Yeah, basically to come out of it without spending too much of my savings trying to survive i mean i'm hoping that we'll be open by november you know i've got a couple of operas in south australia and they've had no cases now for a month so i'm hoping that you know social distancing will finish there soon and i'll be able to start work in november well for broadway it's like they just have to wait for a vaccine so they haven't announced it yet or ever haven't made the decision but it's presumably they'll open up in like january of next year to start load-ins and stuff like that. There must be a lot of people who won't come back to the industry, though, don't you think, that would have had to have gone and find work elsewhere and will never come back? And I reckon we're going to have a missing generation in theatre workers because of this year. Um, Okay, what is your personal goal for this year? Probably to enjoy the time off um, because I never get any time off. Um, I'm finding that difficult at the moment mentally (laughs) because, uh, you know, um, I need something, you know, a bit more mentally. So, you know, get a bit more fitter and active and, and basically enjoy the time off I have because I know that if work comes back, I'll never have this time back again. So, you know, try and enjoy it instead of, you know, fighting, kicking and screaming against it. Um, if money wasn't an issue, what would your life's goal be? I travel heaps, you know, but I still always want to work. You know, I think lighting design is something that you can do until the day you drop, you know, whether it be a little cabaret or a little opera or something like that. So I'll always want to work. Um, so I think, you know, travel more, you know, spend some more time traveling, I think. I love it. Um, okay. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started or would you give somebody that's starting right now? The advice I'd give of somebody starting now is, is start saving for your retirement right now. Like, you know, whether you're 16, 20, 25, start, start putting something in of every paycheck into a savings account. And, you know, that way you'll be nice and comfortable. But, yeah, I can't stress that enough. And even if it's a little bit, you know, it all adds up. And I think that that would be the best advice I could give anybody, no matter what industry they were in. Save for your retirement. You don't want to be a little poor old man or poor old lady, you know, eating baked beans in a cold apartment somewhere. That is solid advice. I love that. Okay, so now some questions from Nicole, my wife, who is a non-artist. Why do a majority of artists have zero savings or retirement savings? Our industry doesn't pay very much, you know, unless you're at the very, very top of your game. The majority of people in our industry are casuals, freelancers. They live on a paycheck-to-paycheck basis. So that's why no one's got any money. You know, the, the work isn't constant. You have to really love doing what we do to kind of live through that situation but uh, you know that's why no one's got any savings because what they earn they 
use to live on and work isn't always there. I mean, it's easier, I think, for us than it is for performers. You'll find a lot more performers with zero savings. If I'm not designing, I could go and, like, do a rig or do a bump in or bump a load in or a load out, you know, when I was younger. Not anymore, thank you. You know, to earn some money. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's why that they don't have any because whatever they earn, they use to live on. That means you've got to really love what you do in this industry. A lot of people love our industry and that's why they put up with the financial difficulties associated with our business. Yeah. How will COVID-19 affect the future of your industry? That's a really good question and a great unknown. You know, last Mm -hmm. year, would we have ever thought we were sitting here talking about, you know, you know, shut Broadway shut till January and will people want to come back? You know, will people want to be squished in like sardines like they are in New York theatres, which are the most squishy theatres I've ever sat in? I hate sitting in a New York theatre at the best of times, let alone post-COVID-19. There'll be a lot more outdoor events, you know, because here the, they're relaxing, you know, social distancing in outdoors. So I, I think there'll be a lot more outdoor events. Um, also sm- smaller theatre projects. I think it'll be a very, very long time until big musicals come back and people are allowed to sit in, you know, 1,500-seat theatres without social distancing. I think it'll affect it greatly in the short term until they get a vaccine, basically. Outdoor theatre, I think, here we come, which, of course, will be seasonal, you know. Right, right, yeah. Um, interesting. You're the first person to mention outdoor theatre. Oh, well, here they're doing, they're already doing um, drive-in concerts, So, you know, you get in your car, you go like you did to the drive-in movies, but you see a concert. So they've already started doing that around Australia. You know, pop singers and rock singers do concerts and you turn up in your car, you stay in your car. Yeah, so it's it's already happening here. Um, Is now a good time for students to study art? Any time is a good time for students to to study art. You know, although if you're looking for financial security and constant work, then the arts may not be your best choice in life. But, you know, I think any time is a good good time to study art. Yeah. Big cities like Sydney are artist hubs. With everything that's going on, should artists still move to big cities? Theatre practitioners, certainly. Big city is certainly the best place to be. However, you know, at the present moment, a big city is probably not the best place to be. But in the long run, a big city is where you've got a better chance to make a living from being a theatre practitioner. You know, I think an artist, you can work anywhere, you know, in fact, probably artists are better working you know in natural environments not in big cities but certainly in our industry you need to be in a big city if you want to earn a living i think uh do you have unions down in australia we certainly do have unions are you in it are you in i used to be when i was a head electrician you know when i was a crew member head electrician you know floor spot operator when i was at the sydney entertainment center i was in a union but we don't have unions like you do for creatives directors designers you know we don't have a scenic design union or anything like that so I'm not in a union anymore because there isn't one to look after me, basically. Yeah. Would it would it be good to have one, do you think? Definitely. You know, because our wages basically haven't gone up in 10 years. So I'm still getting the same lighting design fee for a show that I got 10 years ago. We've lost our royalties. You know, we used to get royalties for our original designs and now we get a weekly fee. We do get taken advantage of a little bit. Um, so I guess a union in that respect would be really good. Interesting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Like no royalties. I used to love royalties. That when you were the electrician, like what does that union do for its workers? Just keeps keeps the wages going up? Yeah, it keeps the wages going up, you know, keeps perks like live to air broadcast fees and things like that um, open. Yeah, negotiates with producers uh, when necessary. Yeah, so they're, they're really strong, you know, not as strong as your local one. Yeah. But still. But that's only in, that's like only Broadway, only big shows. Yeah, yeah. They also um, cover journalists as well. So, you know, it's a bit of a weird mix there. Well, maybe in your uh, current state of downtime, (laughs) you could create a branch of it that's for the designers. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. Get all of us together. That's another thing too, is that we never kind of meet, you know, especially lighting designers. Right. You know, you, you never meet because you're always on another show to the to that lighting designer so yeah you know it's very very rare that two lighting designers will be in the same room together 
if this weren't going on, I probably never would have been talking to you. Yeah. I'm talking to uh, Kathy Perkins, who's another lighting designer. Steve Woods, he's another lighting designer. And then I talked to Peter Kazarowski. I never would have talked to these people if this hadn't happened. And it's 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 sort of cool to talk to like other lighting designers because they just understand. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's the same tribe. Yeah. Okay, uh, final two questions. What separates those that have a career in theatre versus those that stop or never get started? I think basically blind pig-headedness and a very, very strong competitive streak <laughs> and never giving up what you want to do, you know. If you want to do it that much, you do whatever you do, whether you get paid or not, you know. So, yeah, basically blind pig-headedness and a big competitive streak helps heaps. Thank you, mum and dad. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Okay. Final question. Where can people find out more about you? That's a good question. Um, uh, that's a really good question, actually. Um, people can always email me, you know, it's quite easy to get my email. I'm on LinkedIn. They can, uh, email me on LinkedIn if they've got any questions or would like to say hi or whatever. Or they're coming to Australia and they want to sail. Yeah. If they, if they want to <laughs> sail around some, you know, Avoca beach, more than happy to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, I hope you make it to Australia. It's a beautiful country, so and we're nice and safe, you know, and you should um you should incorporate New Zealand into your trip as well. Well, that's why it's been so long in the making because it's like we're go we hit, you have to go so far to get there that it's like you want to spend time there, so you want to spend like 2 weeks at least. As opposed to my 36 hours in New York in January. Right. And you were here for 36 hours and you got lighting information for Yiddish Fiddler and you were doing another show too? Yeah, I went and saw or um, uh, Secret Garden at the Lincoln Centre. You know how they've got the um, a lot of Broadway shows on DVD? Um, so I went and saw that because we were going to do a production of Secret Garden, um, but, of course, that got canned as well. And I managed to see a couple of shows too. I saw Jagged Little Pill and Moulin Rouge and saw you all in 36 hours. And I remember I was like, come over and see West Side Story. And you were like, yeah, I don't, I, I'm already doing these other shows. It took me longer to get there and get back than I was in New York. So that was a bit crazy, but there you go. I had some work. I had to, you know, work calls you got to get back right right wow that's amazing all right well trudy thank you so much for sitting down and chatting oh thank you ethan it's been an absolute pleasure that was our interview with trudy dalglish my takeaways were save starting with your first job at some point you will need to rely on your savings whether it is in retirement or during a pandemic be a hard worker luck plays a part but without hard work luck isn't helpful Working in a country that prioritizes a retirement savings plan for all workers is a good place to be. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu.